Hey, welcome to the Healthy Postnatal Body Podcast. If you're postnatal, let's repeat on up. Now, as always, will be me. This, my friends, is a podcast for the 9th of July, 2023. Uh, and, you know, day before music and all the sort of stuff means I have a guest on. And as I always say, boy, oh boy, oh boy, I have a returning guest on this week for the first time ever. And welcome back, the wonderful Kelly Smith. Uh, you might remember Kelly from an episode I did in August 2022, where we spoke about micro habits and short meditations and all that sort of thing. She's the host of the Meditation Mama podcast and the Guided Meditation podcast, Mindful in Minutes. And she has a new book coming out called Meditation for the Modern Family. And I highly, highly recommend this one. We're talking postpartum rage. Rage. How common is it? What it is? How to best deal with it when the overwhelm hits and how meditation helps prevent postpartum rage and what she's laid out in her new book and all that sort of stuff. It's a great interview. Kelly's a great guest. So I highly recommend you stick around. Right. Without further ado, here we go. Uh, what is postpartum rage and how common is it? So I think everyone that has experienced postpartum at some point in that postpartum period, they've experienced rage. So I think it's mm-hmm. very common. And for me, what I like to describe it as or define it as, as feeling like that pressure cooker, that internal pressure cooker that's getting hotter and more intense. And if you never alleviate the pressure, you you blow off the top. And mm-hmm. so for me, that postpartum rage is that just blowing your top. It's yelling at your spouse. It's snapping at your kids. It's suddenly just crying. It's that kind of like top and sudden blow of anger or deep emotion. And like I said, I think, I think if you've experienced postpartum, I think at least once you've experienced postpartum rage. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it is, but it's it's like you said earlier. It uh, before we before we start recording, it is it is not really talked about all that much, right? It comes back to the everything postpartum is is unicorns and and and, and rainbows, and therefore rage, especially. You can put postpartum depression. We know, right? Mm-hmm. We're okay with postpartum depression, baby blues, as it's still sometimes called by. People who don't know any better. And then we have postpartum anxiety. That's kind of discussed a little bit. Postpartum, postpartum rage. Although everybody feels it, maybe a little, it is very often ignored, I think. I think, yes, I would agree with that. And a piece of it is I think that, although, of course, not everyone who has a child or gives birth to a child will identify as a woman, I think that our modern day society ties motherhood and femininity so closely together. And I don't think that what we think of as a traditional like woman, I don't think we allow her to have rage. So it's okay mm. to feel sad. It's okay to be yeah. worried. And again, this is the very narrow minded definition of like what sure. a mother is, as someone who identifies as female, but we don't let her be angry mm. and we don't let her have angry, unpleasant, you know, quote, ugly emotions. It's okay for, you know, people who identify as male to have angry emotions, but we don't 
really let women be angry. And I think that's something that we put on ourselves. And it's something that society as large, having this very narrow definition of like, what is a mother? Um, we put it on them as well. And I think that creates so much shame around this topic of rage, even though we all experience it, especially in the postpartum period, our hormones are naturally taking us on this like up and down wave. And it's so easy to just have that one little thing that pushes you over the edge and just makes you really mad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Because when I talk to uh, most of my clients or or my listeners and members, if I jokingly say something along the lines of, oh, man, I just sometimes wish I could throw them out the window, right? Yeah. That's acceptable. That's funny. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a middle-aged bald guy, and therefore that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if, however, I think most of the women that I know sit in their friend group, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll use the name very, you know, they they go and for their their mummy and me coffee morning type stuff, you know, mummy and baby coffee mornings when they all sit around and talk, and one of them would say something like, oh, "I could really just sometimes just throw them across the room," um, as in. They're driving me nuts. As in gen- that doesn't mean you'll actually want to do it, but sometimes you just get, yeah. The looks they get are colossally different from the laughs that I would get if I say. Yep. And I think we just have two different sets of standards. I mean, we see this mm-hmm. not only in, in parenthood, but in society sure. as at large. But I think that that's the reason why we don't talk about postpartum rage. Mm-hmm. And there's so many little instances because it's it's never really the big things. Like when you when something big and upsetting, you know, we were we were talking a little bit before we hit record, mm-hmm. Peter and I were about how my toddler unintentionally just locked himself in his room when he's supposed to be taking a nap. And I had to go orchestrate the great escape out of his out of his nursery. And so it's never that big stuff that you really get angry at. It's like all of these little things. It's the, you know, making you a meal for the 10th time this week and you refuse to eat it or you throw Mm -hmm. it. It's all these little things that add up. Again, that pressure cooker, that that it just takes one more little thing that just kind of pushes you over the edge. And it's just building, 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 building until you blow your top, which will look different for everyone. I know um, a big piece of it is often, you know, yelling at your kids. Um, for me, it's usually snapping at my husband or mm-hmm. getting really short with my son or just crying and just being like, kind of that, like, oh, you know, that's, you know, that's enough kind of a like big emotional display mm-hmm. and it happens to all of us. Yeah. So the interesting thing, like you said, it's build up and build up and build up. So how do we prevent, obviously logical question, how do we prevent snapping? Uh, or it's becoming too much at least. Yeah. And so I kind of like to look at this twofold approach. And so I think it's often, and you know, this has come from my own experience also, you know, help with my therapist and all of that, all of the people greater and wiser than all of us that help navigate these things. And I think that in the moment, right. And so sometimes it's inevitable. They're just our kids are really good at pushing our buttons or our partners are good at pushing our buttons or whatever it is. And in the moment, I like to remind myself to give myself the same space, the patience and love that I would give my child if, Mm. you know, if he kind of had those moments of rage or he did something, you know, that was a mistake or whatever it is. 
And I don't, I am not hard on him like I am myself. If I, you know, I'm tired and so I'm cranky and so I snap at someone. Mm-hmm. I'm so hard on myself versus, you know, my two year old, he gets tired, he gets cranky, he snaps, yeah. you know, pretty much every day. And I'm just like, oh, it's okay, buddy. Like you're going through so much. Are you feeling tired? Like, let's talk about it. Yeah. And so in the moment, I like to try to remind myself that we're all imperfect. We're mm-hmm. all human. We all have emotions. And I think our tendency is to label these emotions as quote, good or quote, bad. Mm -hmm. And something that I've learned through the practice of meditation is this idea of letting every experience be somewhat neutral. So Mm -hmm. some will feel more pleasant or less pleasant, but to try to avoid this black and white labeling of like, this feeling is bad where this feeling is good. Because in some instances, like in case of, you know, injustice and things like that, rage can be a good, justifiable, valid emotion. So I think that in the moment, of kind of feeling this rage, there's not a lot that's going to be done right then and there, except for just taking a step back, giving yourself space, giving yourself the kindness and the love that you would give to your child or your partner or anyone else that had those Mm -hmm. very human moments. Then you can kind of work backwards from that. So after we've removed ourselves, kids are sleeping, whatever it is, we're getting a moment to ourselves. Then I I personally really like to utilize meditation as a form of introspection to turn inward and not only kind of soothe the senses and quiet the mind, but to inquire like, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. What's happening beneath the surface? Because it's never just one thing. It's never just this one thing gave me so much rage, right? It's always a slow buildup, this pressure cooker that gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the lid blows. And so you can just turn inward and do your best without judgment and just say like, what's going on beneath the surface? Like, Mm -hmm. how did I get here? And then it's almost like working backwards. It's, you know, in an ideal world, we would all be meditating and practicing self-care and, you know, have the healthiest relationships and never build resentment and, you know, avoid these things that lead to rage. But often it's kind of not until we have the rage that then we want to do something about it. Mm. We don't do a ton of like preventative care around yeah. rage, but once you've experienced it and you're like, Ooh, I really did not like what just happened. Mm-hmm. Then it's a little bit of a working backwards. And you know, how did I get here? Unpacking it, taking time to quiet the mind, to calm down the body, to soothe the senses so that then we have more tools in our toolbox for the next time we start to feel that pressure really building. Yeah, that's fascinating what you said, because I don't know about anybody listening to this, but usually what happens when I lose my temper, which doesn't happen that often, and it never really happens around people. I take my, I, I, it it happens to me, I, I get ticked off at myself more than, more than anything else. <laughs> but but it's uh, the adrenaline, when I'm already at that stage, and like I said, I'm not a punching the wall kind of guy, but just when I've lost my cold, the adrenaline for the next five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe, maybe even minutes, will prevent me from being rational in the situation. Right? I'm right in that moment. I am correct to feel angry in that moment. I'm justified in blah blah blah. Even if it was just a minor thing that ticked me off. And like I said, most of the time it's my computer not working or whatever. It's it's technology that, like you said, a little thing and a little cable will be disconnected and I, and, and I lose my mind. And I'll sit angry at myself for like six, seven minutes. The 
issue I have, and I think a lot of people will identify with this, is that once I've quieted down from that situation, I do very little self-reflection after that. I'm just, it's finished now, it's over, I'm done, and I'm calm. Mm. Therefore, the next time that happens, right, all those little irritations build up again, my reaction is exactly the same. I haven't learned anything whatsoever from the previous situation other than, you know, when my computer freezes up, I lose my temper. That, that's the only lesson I've learned. When I build a flat pack furniture, I'm going to lose my mind at least once. That is just a rule. Um, so it's interesting with what you're saying that now what we need to do afterwards is when we've quieted down, we need some time to reflect on this. We need to raise a bit of awareness within ourselves, so to speak. Of Because yeah. that is the difference between ultimately being successful at this stuff and just being a middle-aged maniac like I am. Well, and I think, Peter, you bring up such a good point is that if we don't take steps towards change, it just, at that point, it kind of just becomes a habit. And again, we're giving ourselves space, especially when we're talking about this postpartum period. There's mm-hmm. so many other facts. I mean, even just sleep deprivation, right, is such a contributor to frustration, anger, and ultimately rage, right? The hormones, frustrations with breastfeeding, you know, however your breastfeeding journey, there's so mm-hmm. many other factors than just once you're removed from that and you're living your everyday life. But if it's something that you see that you want to change, you have to put some action behind that. And it's very hard to make any meaningful change without the awareness piece. And so much of what I have found to be useful as a mother is introspection, is meditation, because it gives me that awareness. Meditation is designed to help you be an observer of your own existence without this judgment piece. Mm-hmm. And so that could, you know, look like again asking yourself how did I get here. It also could be this is something that my therapist taught me because I had a wonderful postpartum therapist who would say, you know, check in and give yourself a rating from like 1 to 10. 10 is like one little thing I'm going to blow my lid and one is like I'm chilling on the beach and vacation. And ask yourself and you wake up in the morning and you're like, "Oh shoot, I'm already at an 8 and nothing's even happened today." Yeah. Like having that awareness that you just know like, you know what? I'm really kind of just walking on the edge here. And then mm-hmm. you can start doing things and being proactive once we have the awareness to then start making, implementing some of those changes. And over time, maybe finding a way to continually relieve some of that pressure every day, several times a day through these little bits of like hair and introspection and like you know, I always think of it as like soothing the self. Again, we look mm-hmm. at our little kids and like a baby or a toddler, even a kid, when you get really, really wound up and they're really, really wound up, you're not really going to do a whole lot or a whole lot of parenting in those super, super hot moments, right? You have yeah. to soothe them. You have to calm them down. We come back to baseline. Then maybe you can talk about it. Then you can do something about it. Then you can be like, oh, what led to this thing? we're the same way. We're just, we're all just big babies and we need, you know, the same thing where it's like in the moment of rage, when you're seeing red, when you just are like, that's it. I've had it. This is the last thing. Not a lot is going to happen in that. You know, it usually just lasts just a moment. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to happen in that exact moment. That's super productive other than just seeing it in yourself. Oh, you know, I just 
blew my top. Now I'm going to immediately try to do something to calm down so I don't prolong this. But just like our kids need some time to calm down before you can really do anything about it. Like we have to create the space first and then we can be proactive in trying to change the habit. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's like I've done a lot of chats of the last few years of like teen, of teenage parenting experts and all that sort of stuff. And they always talk about this, you know, and, and it's, it's funny that, that we accept, it's like what you said, we accept toddlers have their own because they can't really communicate all that well. Uh, teenagers, well, you know, they're teenagers, but once we're adults, we kind of all expect to have our shit together at all times and especially when it then comes to the parenting situation where you are you know you're old enough to be a parent and therefore mature enough and you have to teach somebody else how to become a young uh, adult and and i think a lot of the time the thinking around that is then that you are so far down the tree of self-care. And we know this anyways with postpartum uh, postpartum women, right? When the, in the You go from being the most important person in the world to the baby comes out to, well, nobody cares about you anymore. To, uh, so, so to take that self-care on that level, that you have a bit of awareness and that you then take actions and that you have a support network. That helps you with those actions because I'm thinking, you know, if you're part of the of a family structure at all, or you have a husband or or, or a partner or uh, that can help in those situations, a discussion needs to be had, and that's a difficult, necessary, sometimes thing to do as well, uh, where you have a sit down with your partner, going, okay, I've identified one or two issues. This will this always gets on my nerves, or like you said, I'm not sleeping well. And then this happened, and I'm going to lose my mind if that happens. Uh, so what you can do to help to alleviate the pressure would be X, Y, Z. That requires a level of of communication that I think a lot of us kind of have kind of given up on when we're out. Yeah. Well, and I think it's hard, too, when you're in partnership or when you're raising children in general, because you are spread so thin, you're being pulled in so many different directions. But I think one of like, Peter, you hit the nail on the head is that one of the best ways I think in general to alleviate some of that pressure is to name it and to talk about it and to take this idea of like rage or yelling at your kids. And I want to make one just like distinction that when we talk about like postpartum rage, it's like, it's those little, like, you know, you yell at your kids, you, you know, you snap or Mm -hmm. you, you know, snap at your husband, you cry, whatever it is. But over time, of course, if we're having this like continual rage that of course can then lead to something that can be a more serious issue, but in just these little, you know, those little moments, right. Where you know, as I've talked about, I have a toddler, right? So we're we're going through a, a cycle of being a picky eater and saying, I want this for lunch. And I say, no problem, buddy. And I make him that for lunch. And then he says, new one and throws it. And it's just that one little thing where you're like, for goodness sakes, if I make you one more, you know, made to order meal and you chuck it across the room, sometimes I'm like, okay, then starve. And it's like those little moments where you just like, you get reactive. But I think that just naming it, whether it be talking to your partner, although sometimes that can be harder to do Mm -hmm. because that's a very nuanced, complex relationship. But even, you know, like 
I don't know what I would do without my mom's group chat, like via text where Mm -hmm. you just say, oh my gosh, you'll never believe my little guy asked me for peanut butter toast. I made it the way he liked it. And then he threw it across the room and the dog ate it. And then you have the other moms that are just like, oh my gosh, I've, you know, I've been there. That's the worst feeling that makes me so mad. Mm -hmm. And like rage tends to be kind of that like old piece of cheese in the back of the refrigerator that we like shove in the back and it starts like growing mold. And once you like pull it to the surface, you're like, oh, wow, look at this. This has not been looked at for a while. This has not Mm -hmm. been addressed. This has just been like festering in the darkness. Mm -hmm. Rage is like that. And I think often naming it, talking about it, you know, whether it be with a friend or a therapist or your partner or whoever, even sometimes with your own child, we try to do this sometimes in my household. If I snap at my son and I say, okay, then don't eat. I don't care. You know, then in that moment, then taking that moment and be like, you know what, buddy, I'm sorry. Like mom was feeling so frustrated. She wanted to make you this Mm -hmm. good lunch. And then, you know, it was thrown and kind of letting your humanity be shown, Mm -hmm. I think is such a great pressure reliever to stop us from getting to that point of feeling like we're just going to kind of blow our lid. Because that's an excellent point. Because quite often, everybody who knows me knows I will talk to my dogs more than I talk to anybody else, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I am well aware. I'm, 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 I like to think they're smarter than they are. I'm well aware that they don't speak English all that well. But I have full conversations with them. And the conversation about is not so much about them. So when you're talking to your two-year-old, and listen, I'm sorry, dude, I didn't mean to shout at you there. You just feel it. It's much more for you than it is for him, right? It's, it's, yeah. They pick up, kids pick up on, on vibes. Sure, I'm a big believer in that. They pick up on, on the, on the energy that, that you project. And if you project calmness or you project rage, any parent will notice. If, if you flip your lid, your kid will start crying pretty much immediately because they pick up on that sort of mama gorilla, baby gorilla type, type, type thing, right? But if you then have a conversation, you calm down and thereby the child calms down. The child doesn't necessarily calm down because he understands that, well, the peanut butter sandwich shouldn't have been thrown across the room. And I'm sorry, mommy, but the conversation is more for your benefit than it is mm-hmm. for his. In the same way that my conversation with my dogs are significantly more for my benefit than for theirs. So, uh, it's interesting what you what you mentioned, because one of the things you mentioned is is that Resentment, yeah, resentment, maybe a strong word, but resentment towards your partner. I think a lot of um, a lot of women will be able to identify with that, whether that is because you're feeling you're not getting the level of support or understanding, or just generally you're looking for a target to take your day out on, <laughs> which we all do when we're married. I've been out again, just muttering under your breath, and this guy can't do anything right to that, that type. Uh, that that is my go-to is the mutter under my breath uh, how do you best deal with that and especially from a meditation perspective uh, so and i i think you know i i think peter you'd be hard pressed to find a, a mother that didn't have at least a little bit of resentment towards yeah. their their partner and for me and i and i, I want to talk about kind of how to address that in a moment but like i think it's important to Look at the resentment again with that objective lens. So it's mm. very easy to start judging your thoughts right away and say, Oh, I'm building up this resentment because of, you know, A, B, and C, and then judging that right away. So for me, even though, you know, I, I knew 
what, like I built up some resentment at the very beginning of my son's life um, towards my partner because of the inequity in our schedules. Mm -hmm. So I work for myself. I'm more of an entrepreneur. You know, I podcast, you know, all of these things. So in theory, my schedule is very flexible. He works in healthcare. So his schedule is completely inflexible. Yeah. It's not like we changed jobs when we became parents. We both knew what this was going to look like, but there was something that just felt so unfair some days of my day being turned upside down, but his day keeping that same routine, Mm -hmm. even though, again, it wasn't his fault. It wasn't my fault. We knew this is what it was going to look like day to day, but there was just something that felt so unfair of seeing him walk out the door to go have his normal land (laughs) adult life and come home you know when he was done working for the day that just over time built up a little bit of that resentment and so sometimes it's even these little things that we know will happen but then over time they can build up some resentment Mm. and i think it's really easy to like i said judge yourself for these feelings but i think that taking that same objective perspective and again you know being a meditation teacher this is what I love and this is what I utilize, but learning how to become an observer of what's happening within you and around you without judgment helps you to get clarity as to what's actually happening. And so you can, you know, maybe you can say, oh my gosh, I just, I'm feeling so resentful, right? But then you can sit with that and be like, you know, I actually, this just doesn't feel fair. And then you can dig a little bit deeper. And when we look at what's happening within us and around us without that judgment piece, It just like, you know, it's like wiping your glasses clean. You can just see that a little bit more clearly. And I think that that helps to shine some light on it and to know how to address it without kind of, you know, becoming necessarily heated about it. And so when it comes to resentment, um, and this is a piece. So um, in my book, I have a section on partner meditations and one of those meditations in there, they're not necessarily all meditations you can do with your partner, but one is a releasing resentment um, meditation specifically because I think it's something that we deal with a lot, mm-hmm. but learning where to kind of not only name it, but then find a healthy and protective way to either release that resentment or be able to sit with it and let it be there. Resentment can exist, but that doesn't mean it has to kind of eat us alive. Mm. And that practice is designed to really kind of let you sit with it, name it, and then decide if you want to release it or not. Um, But I think that really just learning how to look at it objectively is such a big piece of working through resentment in that postpartum period. Yeah, because that's that's an interesting point. It's exactly what, what It strikes home when you're saying, okay, we knew what the change was going to be. We knew I was going to stay at home. Uh, We knew he would go back to work because, you know, that is the way of the world. That's what we agreed. And yet, uh, he gets to be the adult all day and you have baby talk all day. Uh, or at least a, a large chunk of that. I'm not saying one is better or than the other. It's just one can be more frustrating than others or frustrating in different ways. Um, and then especially when the understanding, I don't know if you're finding this as a self-employed person, my schedule is flexible, sure. But that doesn't mean that I don't do anything all day. 
that that my day is just spent. (laughs) Yeah, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, but you do all day. Okay, you wrote a bit for your book. You did a bit podcasting, and you looked after the kid. Yeah, you know. It's so yeah. hard. I was being a doctor or surgeon or whatever your husband does all day, right? That's yeah. proper job versus self-employed work, work in air quotes. Um, therefore, the understanding isn't necessarily there because I, I have a, I, I train a lot of, a lot of women who are entrepreneurs and they have, I mean, remarkably intelligent women at the top of their game, but they have kids and they, they are self-employed and they're, they're, working flexi time and it's immediately seen as and, and they make good money so this is not like Tupperware parties or anything like that Victoria's Secret parties for shits and giggles these are it this is but they're immediately seen as if you're working flexi time you're looking after a kid that means your job isn't really much of a job and it's difficult to relate to that for someone who's in a nine to five or in case of medical professionals, 12s to 12s and, and all that sort of crazy shift. So this. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's like, you're in my household sometimes, Peter, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is, I think that for, you know, I can only speak as my experience as a mother and yeah. as a woman, but I do think that there is when you, when you work from home or if you work for yourself, that because there technically is flexibility, that doesn't mean that you are always the one that needs to flex or to mold or to change. And I think a big piece of resentment is also recognizing where there are and are not boundaries Mm -hmm. and like setting that up. Yeah, no, that, that, that is an excellent point. That's an excellent point. Um, Because I think, yeah, just because you're capable of being flexible doesn't mean that you should be the one that's flexible all all the time. That I think that that will strike home with quite a few, quite a few people listening to this podcast. Judging by the emails, I usually get after. <laughs> after. Well, and I I think that for those who identify as like a quote default parent. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I think that you know going back to this idea of like resentment and rage like nothing builds resentment faster than feeling like you're the default parent like not by choice sure and that you're like oh you know our our child's sick so he's staying home today so of course because i'm the one that works for myself Mm -hmm. that means i'll clear my day and you know deal with it or you know Mm -hmm. oh i'll i'll cancel on peter because i happen to be home working and my two-year-old locks himself in his bedroom (laughs) right you know it's just those things that i think that's such a one-way ticket to if we aren't, you know, looking at these things kind of in the moment, doing these little check-ins, doing this kind of self-care, this alleviating that pressure, even something like that. It's one of those slow burns over time. Like from time mm. to time, it's not that big of a deal. But when every day there's something where you're like, well, I'm the default parent, but not really by choice, this was kind of just like a sign to me, then that's how you start to kind of get in those kind of intense pressure cooker moments and then you have those one little things and then you just blow your lid and it and it happens and i think that for a lot of people that identify which i imagine a lot of your listeners do Mm. identify as the quote default parent it is you know that's a really tricky one to sometimes navigate yeah and just for any any guys listening to this who are who are you know, because believe it or not there are some men that 10 percent of my listener base is 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 male uh they are the dads in the relationship, so to speak. Um, 
being underappreciated is the single <laughs> fastest way to build up resentment oh, towards someone. You know, it it really it's a is. mess in the house. Why haven't you cleaned? Well, I don't know. Why don't you clean your jackass? You know, that's, that is the fastest way to do it. Um, it genuinely is. And again, speaking from my own experience, uh, on, on, on both sides of that particular, uh, that, that particular aisle. And it's interesting that you said that the meditations in the book, the partner meditations are ones that don't have to be done by partners. Cause I know loads of women, but as soon as I said, as soon as you said partner meditations, they were like, there is no way. There's just <laughs> no way I'm going to get my partner to join in on the meditation or cause yeah. You know, how, you know how, how do you get someone on board? And you know what? My partner doesn't meditate with me either. He is, he works in healthcare. He is a doctor and he is so on board with the idea of meditation. He will even, you know, talk to his patients and say, Oh, there's really interesting. Oh, you have high blood pressure. There's really interesting studies that 10 minutes of meditation can do this and that. But even in my own household, it's not like my husband and I every night are carving out our, our 15 minutes to like sit and hold hands and meditate together. Although it can be that, And so in the book, so there's kind of four main sections. The first is kind of meditation 101, you know, how do you do it? How to talk about it with your kids. There's the second section, which is like 30, I think 32 different topics um, where there's talking about like reflection. So like one chapter is on frustration and I describe, it's kind of like personal reflections and learnings um, where I describe something actually when you were talking, Peter, about, you know, when you lose your temper, your kid usually cries. And I just mm-hmm. recount this kind of when I first realized that, you know, my my son couldn't talk, he was young and we were both really frustrated. And then before we know it, we were both sitting on the, you know, kitchen floor crying because we both were just so frustrated and couldn't communicate with one another. And yeah. then, and then we were both in tears and, you know, that's what happens. And then there's a prenatal section or pregnancy section. And then mm-hmm. the last section is meditation um, for partnership. And so if you're raising a child with a partner or growing your family with a partner, and so some of the practices in there and some of the learnings are for like you personally as one part of that partnership. And then there's others that you can do with your partner, whether mm-hmm. there's one in there like to build intimacy, if you want to do that um, for like emotional connection, but also, you know, when it comes to this sort of stuff, it's, you really are only responsible and can do anything about yourself. Mm. And, but that doesn't mean that through my own personal meditation practice, right? If I'm personally working through my resentment through meditation, that does ultimately trickle down into my partnership as a whole, because it's something that, you know, when I'm working on the self, mm. um, and I may not necessarily want to do a release resentment meditation with my husband, who knows what might come out if we're doing that together. You know, I like to do that on my own time, but looking at this idea of like, how can we utilize introspection, single pointed concentration and learning how to become an observer of ourselves in this scope of also being a a partner to someone else. And so I felt like that was an important piece to incorporate because it's, it's hard being a parent. It's really hard, you know, being a mom and a dad. Um, It's also really hard being a partner mm. and navigating, at least in my own life, I found it really tricky to kind of navigate those changing roles from just husband and wife to now mom and dad. And and what do you do about that when you make that shift? Because that's a huge one. 
Yeah, because that's a, that's a really, really difficult one for a, an awful lot of people. I've spoken to a tremendous amount of people that really struggled, not so much with having a baby. The having a baby bit was fine. The hormonal bit was fine, uh, even for, for, for them. But the changing of roles in, uh, and uh, the dynamic of, of the relationship, where indeed, like you said, there's, there's, there's not necessarily an, an equal distribution of labor, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, postpartum, right? The, yes. Uh, you can both have a nine to five, just as box standard examples, but one will have a nine to five and a baby and the other one will have a nine to five and maybe, yeah, sometimes, you know, do bath time. Right? And I'm not saying who does what and, and I'm not judging who does what, but just that distribution of, of labor and especially of the mental load because uh, mainly talking about mental load uh, today. And, and, you know, you've, you've, you'll have seen the, the cartoon. It's one of my favorite favorite things I've ever seen, the mental load in a relationship, you know, the having to run a household, just the mental load of it, not not the physical time spent doing it, but having to think about doing it, having to think about the shopping and what we're eating and, and what the schedule is uh, versus not having that is, is a huge, it's a huge, huge thing. Uh, and just learning how to be able to deal with that and, to slow that down a little bit, um, I think is a very valuable thing. Because like I said, a lot of people underestimate just how big that mental load postpartum really, really is. Yeah, I absolutely. And I think that, you know, not only as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, not only the mental load and something that, you know, that I've been thinking a lot about is this idea of, Often there's a parent, again, usually the quote default parent that will do like the research into things that will come up with a plan yeah. that will, you know, say, okay, here's what I'm thinking. Here's, you know, let's say potty training, for instance, mm. right? Here's all the different methods of potty training. Here's the pros and cons. Here's the book on this. Here's the book on that. I read all these books and, you know, did the research, watched the documentaries. And I feel like this method will work best for us and our family. And then the other parent can do their absolute best and can say, great, I'm on board, you know, and, and follow the plan that you have so clearly laid out. Mm -hmm. There's so much invisible work that goes into coming up with that as opposed to then just be handed the plan and to say, great, I love it. Let's do Mm -hmm. it. And then you do it together. But I think it's important to note too that in those early, early postpartum days, that there is an increased physical load sure. that the mother, that whoever, you know, gave birth to the child will be experiencing, you know, through whatever's happening with feeding, whatever, you mm. know, you do or do not do, the healing, um, you know, all of that, especially if you're like exclusively breastfeeding or I exclusively pumped with my son because he never latched. And so even mm-hmm. if he was up or asleep, I, you know, that meant I was up every three hours yeah. pumping. And that is also something that in those early, early days is such a big contributor to resentment, but also that rage piece of like yeah, sure. when your body is so worn down physically and it's mm-hmm. not given the care and the rest that it needs to recuperate. We absolutely see that popping up in our emotions. 
and and being really reactive and having a short fuse. And of course it is because you know we're we're being run ragged physically and there's mm. just certain aspects of that big increase in physical load for the body after having just given birth, you know, within the last eight to 12 weeks that Mm. are so strong and intense that can really contribute to then those, those highs and those lows. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I, I did an interview and I think I covered this a couple of weeks ago in in, in a Q and a about prepping for postpartum, you know, the Chinese habit of sitting the month. So yeah, did an interview with GM Whitley about this a while ago, just 30 days of, all you have is you and the baby. You don't cook, you don't clean, you have someone else to do that. Family, ideally. Yeah. Family doesn't come around to see and play with the baby. Family comes around to help. Otherwise, they can take a walk. They'll see the baby a few months from now. <laughs> that is such a, it makes so much sense to me. Such an, I mean, to have that approach. And it might be difficult to organize with the family because, you know, we're very much, uh, we have a certain way of doing things. But it's, it would be so beneficial, especially when it comes to mental well-being and all that sort of stuff, to be able to do something like that. And that would then also give you time to connect with your baby, get a meditation, slowing the mind down, just to to stop that. Because you're always going to be sleep deprived the first yeah. couple of months. That is, it's it's a given. It's going to happen. But like you said that will then give you the time when you wake up on a scale of one to 10 as a seven already on, on the rage factor, because you're sleep deprived, so you a crappy night's sleep, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're sore, you're, everything doesn't feel right. Um, but then you will have a bit of time to slow down and a bit of time to take that away and to indeed go meditate, read a bit of the book or listen to one of one episode of, of 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 your podcast and 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 just go with the ah, okay now I'm myself again and it makes it in the long run this sort of stuff I'm a firm believer on this all this like is, is what you mentioned looking after yourself will benefit the family as well even if it means taking 10 15 minutes away from the family uh the overall benefit for the remainder of the day is significantly larger then yeah. the removal of that 15 minutes is. 100%. And I think, you know, something I reminded myself a lot of, and, you know, even that first year was that a well-cared for mother led to a well-cared for child. Mm-hmm. And I have found specifically when it comes to rage and anger in particular, is that it's not, you know, taking one weekend off a quarter or it's taking, <laughs> you know, getting one day to the spa every yeah eight weeks or whatever. It's these tiny little micro breaks that we create for ourselves to alleviate some of that pressure, whether it be meditation or just laying down and closing your eyes for a few minutes, taking a few deep breaths, reading a little bit of a book, you know, whatever your thing is and doing these tiny little kind of pressure breaks throughout the day that even if that adds up to maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes for the whole day, that is so much more impactful for helping you to not hit that 10 on the rage scale mm. than you know giving 200% for everything. And then once every two months, have someone say, oh, why don't you just relax this morning and sleep in? And then you get you know one five-hour break a month as opposed to you know 20 minutes 
spaced out throughout the day. It makes such a big difference to have these little micro habits and these micro changes that end up making a big change on the large scale instead of trying to take like one big break, which I think sometimes we, you know, we treat it like this beautiful gift for mothers. You've been giving mm-hmm. 200% for, you know, six straight weeks. I'll get up first tomorrow and you sleep in or something. And it's like, it's, you know, the, yeah. the thought is nice, but that's not really that kind of pressure reliever that you necessarily mm. need. It's like these little bits throughout the day to kind of reset or alleviate some pressure that just makes such a big impact on yourself and your family and ultimately your children. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is one of my, one of my friends is a, um, post-traumatic stress coach and by that i mean he deals with victims of car crashes plane crashes bombings and all that sort of stuff wow um yeah i mean it's one hell of a job uh and i met him about 15 years ago when i still had a proper job and i lived my life the same way that you just described and i was working 70 80 90 100 hour weeks and then i went to new york for two weeks or something like that that's my (laughs) holiday and then i went back to right and he said oh dude you're living your life completely wrong yeah. Everything about your life is completely wrong. You're stressed out all the time. Even when you're away, you're not going to switch off because you need three days just to decompress. Then you have a week off and then three week, three days you have to build up off going back to work again. He said, mm-hmm. from a stress level perspective, doing it that way where you only occasionally have a break, is that, that is horrible. Teachers will know what we're talking about. Teachers get eight weeks off in like the middle of the year or something like that, right? And every teacher in the world will tell you the first two weeks they just sit on the couch and they get sick because that stress is finally released and they get all the diseases in the world in two weeks. Then they have four weeks of relaxation time. And then they have two weeks of, oh, my God, I have to go back to work again. I have to do this. I've got to get ready. i got to prep. i got to get ready. I need to prep. All that sort of stuff. So your eight-week holiday is actually only a four-week holiday. Mm -hmm. Right. And and yeah. that's why when people tell me, our oh, teachers have so much time off, I think, yeah, they do, but you know, they really don't. Um yeah. so no, that, that is very, very true what, what you're saying there. Cool. So when is the book coming out for everybody listening to this? When can we go so, onto Amazon and order this thing? So you can go and order it anytime now. It'll be released and sent to you on September 5th, but it's available for pre-order now. So I always like to, I personally even before I became an author, like to pre-order books because you pre-order them and then you forget about it. And then publication day comes and have you ever done this before, Peter? Yes. And then it gets like delivered and you're like, oh, what did I order from Amazon or Barnes and Noble, whatever? And you open it and you're like, oh my gosh, I was so excited about this. So that's how I personally like to do it, but it'll be available online and in all major retailers um, on September 5th. It's called Mindful in Minutes, a meditation guide for the modern family. So it's the book that I wrote that I not only does it answer all the questions that I get asked most frequently, mainly like, how do I incorporate meditation into my family? How do I talk to my kids about it? How do I meditate with little kids, adolescents, and teenagers? How do I also incorporate this into my life as mainly mom, um, you know, for my own well-being? And so it explores all of those different things um, within the book. So September 5th is the big day. And if it speaks to you, it would be so special to me if you had that book. If it's not for you, that's beautiful too. Love that. But yeah, that's that's the the birthday of the book. The book birthday. it it looks. I had a look on Amazon. It's only twenty five bucks or something like that uh, for the hardcover. It's eleven dollars on Kindle. It's it's a gift book. 
it's a gift book. Even if you know people listening to this are like, my kids are already six. I don't, I, I don't need this anymore. You'll know people that are gonna have kids. Yes. Buy them the copy of the book. Amazon will ask you to do this. You can go online. You say <laughs> ship it to a different address. Ship it to somebody else's Kindle. I don't want this. Yes. It's only twelve bucks on the on the and for 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 the Kindle version. That's right. And you know, it's funny that you say you know six year olds, seven year olds. Actually, something that I've gotten the most positive feedback about is how this book has sections that speak specifically to adolescents. Ah, and I've nice. spoken to so many parents that feel like that is the age group that is left out. You mm. can find you know, mindfulness practices, meditation practices for your five-year-old. You can find them for your 15-year-old. But like, what about that middle school kid that's like navigating you know, social constructs in the seventh grade? Like, yeah. how do you help support them? And it's interesting that you bring up kind of that middle childhood because that's the piece that I've gotten the most positive feedback on is people being excited that you can talk to adolescents about this stuff and incorporate it into because nothing is more traumatizing than like middle school. Let's be real. That like like a a 12-year-old girl (laughs) trying to navigate, you know, social hierarchies for the first time. Like that is just you know, nothing is trickier than that. And I often think about, you know, I didn't learn about meditation or how to meditate until my mid to late Mm twenties. What would it have been like if I would have had that, you know, those tools in my toolbox when I was six or even 16, like how differently would life be if I knew how to utilize those tools at a much younger age? And so I wanted to create something um, so that you can kind of create this atmosphere of mindfulness for your whole family. Well, that makes perfect, perfect sense. So there's no reason, if you're listening to this, just buy the book. I mean, it is, it is one of those <laughs> no-brainers. So no matter how old your kids are, just go out, buy the book. It will, it'll be the best, assuming you're buying the Kindle version, because everybody buys Kindle these days, because, you know, I'm the only one who still buys hardcovers. Uh, I love only, a good hardcover, too. This is the best fun. way. It's the only way to read, really. Um but, you know, it'll be the best 12 bucks you're going to spend this year. So I, I'd strongly recommend that. On that happy note, I will press stop record here. And press stop record is exactly what I did. Thanks very much to Kelly for coming on. Um, I love having her as a guest. And, and, you know, she's always welcome on the podcast. Her book, Meditation for the Modern Family, is come, comes out in September. But you can pre-order it now. And I am told, a little birdie told me, that it's better to pre-order uh, for the offer because that means that you know Barnes and Noble and all those bookstores uh, that's the only example you know Barnes and Noble's Waterstones they will order more physical copies of the book uh, and it's also it's nice for you because if you order it today and you should you should click the little link and you should order it today um, then it just gets delivered to you and you've forgotten about it so by the 5th of September when it actually comes out you get a little book in the mail how exciting is that obviously this Kindle version is available as well right um like I said, it's 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 a sort of book that I think makes a great gift to people who are currently pregnant and all that sort of stuff. Because it it just it makes sense. Um, knowing the news this week, this week we're going straight to a new bit of classical music, just nice and relaxed. And I will have the pleasure of checking in on you next week. All right, bye now.